In my book, you get points for staying out of the can. Good thing for me, then, that your book don't mean no gods to me. You are listening to Pot of Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, conversation, and NBA references. I'm Vic Singh, and like Junior in this episode, I'm wandering aimlessly alone on a bridge on this one. Today's episode is Where's Johnny, the third episode of season five, written by Michael Calio and directed by John Patterson. It originally aired on March 21st, 2004, when Yeah! by Usher was a number one hit. Personally, I always preferred Tony's version of Yeah. Toast? Yeah. Another note on the title. An alternate name for this episode could be Where's Edie? As it's the one in which she did not appear. There's also a latent reference to The Shining in more ways than one. Where's Johnny, of course, is a play on Here's Johnny from the film, which also recently found a new lease on life as a Super Bowl commercial. The other way it parallels The Shining is that we're witnessing Junior slowly lose his mind in real time. He's got a bit of cabin fever, if you will, this episode, and decides to do something about it. Will his actions rise to the level of Jack Torrance? Let's find out. Of course, The Shining was a 1980 film by Stanley Kubrick based on a book by Stephen King. HBO synopsis. Tony's power-sharing plan doesn't fly with Johnny Sack, who makes his point through a bookie named Lorraine Coluzzo. Out on parole, Feech Lomana, Robert Loggia, crosses Polly in his attempt to break into the landscaping business. Tony gets a roommate, and Junior looks into the past while testing the patience of those closest to him. Okay, we open on an exterior shot of the Bada Bing. A sign above reads, M. Knight, followed by Free Buff. Probably means nothing at all. But I read that as... Free Midnight Buffet, to which I thought, Captain of Industry Move by Sill, incorporating free food after hours at a strip club. I also thought of M. Night Shyamalan, but that's neither here nor there. Unless, of course, this episode features a character that sees dead people, as predicted, of course, by Quasimodo. If anyone fits the bill, or comes close, it'd probably be Lorraine Coluzzo, who incidentally also gets a new lease on life. Finally, before we leave this frame, there's a little red Corvette in the parking lot. Q Prince. Inside, Georgie's trying to wield a chef's knife while Tony's staring at a stack of papers. Georgie could benefit from a couple of YouTube videos on proper technique. It would go a long way. I watched a couple of you back in the day, and I've been surgical with my Kyocera ceramic Sentoku knife ever since. Okay, enough with the America's Top Chef over here. Tony B. comes in to pick up the linens. Recall that Tony Soprano signed him up for a gig, however reluctantly, but make sure that all his stops are accounted for. Efficient. Even the smallest gesture comes with a price for these guys. Every encounter is a racket. Here he is. Mr. Clean. Autopsy made the wonderful observation that it's a subtle nod to Tony B's desire to stay clean as far as mob attachments were concerned. This got me wondering about Mr. Clean. 
How's he doing in 2020? Well, by all accounts, that lone hoop earring is glistening shinier and brighter than ever. My household swears by those magic erasers. Not for nothing, but Muscles Marinara would have made a great Mr. Clean. The things that might have been. Anyway, Tony's still feeling guilty. It's eating him up. At this point, the guilt is full bore part of this season's arc. It's the engine that's driving his relationship with Tony B. He mentions luck of the draw. Could have just as easily been him that went away. Tony B, however, looks cool and calm. Easy. Like a guy grateful to be out of the can. He's making work notes, making stops, albeit legitimate ones. Tony, soprano, in a way, almost looks envious. Evidenced by the looks he keeps throwing him. They're not quite looks of disgust. Rather, they look like this number one thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. You get a double down of this vibe when Tony B walks away with the Bing's dirties. Love the choice of that word. Tony brings up the hijack, the one that put Tony B away. He was supposed to be there, but he got jumped by a couple of goons and cut his head open. Pay attention to this story and how it morphs. Imagine how many times it's morphed in his own head over the past 15 years. And the goons part, the word choice, it's out of place. And statements that are lies always have one word that isn't quite right. That's a tell that gives it away. Goons felt like that word here. In case the way Tony delivers his explanation wasn't enough of a tell already. What else? 16 stitches, 16 Chechen rebels, nice symmetry. 16 stitches versus 15 years. I read that as Tony equating years in the can with stitches on his head. In this twisted fiction, Tony's conveying that he has a leg up, that he somehow got the worst of it. And then we get a great cut. Tony B walks out with a sack of dirty strip club laundry into Feech's ragtop Cadillac. Feech wants Tony B to get in the game too and welcomes the massage therapy as a way to keep appearances, if nothing else. A little tax shelter. Tony B must have been a real all-star. All these people trying to get him to come out of retirement, jump right back into the starting lineup. They're treating his jail time like a blip in the radar, like Michael Jordan's baseball hiatus. Feech practically has a number 45 jersey waiting in the glove box for him. That, or a 45 caliber gun. But still, guys' services are in demand. He's playing the wrong sport over here. Next, Feech wants to talk frankly about Tony Soprano, but gets cut off. There's a conversation that never happened that should have happened. The modern-day analog to this might be a text exchange where you're sitting on the typing awareness bubble for what seems like an eternity. Fuck! Hate it when that happens. In this particular instance, our text message bubble is suspended in limbo thanks to Sal fucking Vitro. Feech gets sidetracked by this guy making an honest living on the side of the road. What the hell was he thinking? What are you doing? I gotta now, make a stop. How incredible was the sound of Feech's Cadillac door closing? That door weighed more than most whole cars do today. Feech accosts Salvitro and says his nephew works this neighborhood now. Very wire feel here. 
This is my corner. You're working on my corner. Get off my corner. Only problem is, where's Salvitro's Omar? You feel me? How about I fuck off all over your stupid fucking face? You fucking mutt! Technical note. The punch impact sounds are timed perfectly with cuts, marrying the audio with the visual to great effect. You can almost feel the knuckles on your own jaw. And the final touch of curb-stomping Sal's arm was aggressive but paradoxically artful. From Salvitro screaming and writhing in pain, we cut to the white noise of a crapped-out TV. Broken humans, broken things. What's the difference in this world? Junior's aide of the month, Tommy is it? Can't figure out the controls. Who's the guy on the TV when it finally starts working? Um, The TV show interior decorator guy. Christopher Lowell is my guess. He shares something in common with The Sopranos, besides The Russian, of course, in that he too was an Emmy winner back in 2000. Only unfinished business that remains with respect to Christopher Lowell? I wonder if his plays look like shit, too. Okay, after this interior decorator guy, something magical happens, show-wise and podcast-wise. Junior's guy channel surfs over to HBO, where Curb Your Enthusiasm is on. Junior mistakes Larry David for himself and Jeff Garland for Bobby, which is hilarious if you've seen one of the more recent Curbs where Garland is mistaken for Harvey Weinstein. Guy can't catch a break, no matter the decade. Quick curb decide. Alongside The Sopranos, it is probably the best portrayal of the minutiae, ridiculousness, and regularness of daily life. Like Tony, Larry says what so many of us think, but don't have the balls to say. Okay, over to Tony eating a bagel, drinking coffee, shout out Dunkin' Donuts, and doing crossword puzzles in the paper. Ideal weekend situation for me since time immemorial. Don't know how I ever did it without auto-check, though. Fucking internet. Patsy walks in with a tucked-in Alan Stewart number to announce Bobby's arrival. He, naturally, enters in an untucked Alan Stewart number. Nice framing of him and Tony embracing with a punching bag in between them. A subtle hint at what's to come later in the episode between Tony and Janice. Always with the symmetry, these writers. Bobby wants to earn more on account that his cost basis went up ever since Janice came into the mix. Tony asks how she is. She sleeps a lot. It's hard. Still with the Epstein bar, huh? It's tough on her. I don't know. Quick reminder, Epstein bar is a very common virus and a precursor to mono. The name comes from the two scientists who discovered it. And as of 2020, the vaccine still doesn't exist. Okay, so Bobby wants to be out on the street, but Tony needs him home with Junior. Because, well, it's a matter of trust. Hi, Billy Joel. Bye, Billy Joel. But to end this awkward Larry David-esque encounter, Tony slides out the back door by saying he's going to find a way to take care of him some other way. Hold on to this. It connects to something else down the line here. Next, over to Polly escorting his mom and Aunt Mary into her house. Nucci is explaining the wondrousness that is Green Grove, and Aunt Mary obliged her with a notch slightly below sardonic response. Sounds like the Ritz. Mm. Next, Polly learns that somebody broke Salvitro's arms. He worked, or used to work, at Aunt Mary's. Polly, being the neat and orderly freak that he is, can't stand to see her curb appeal go to the pits. 
Nucci vouches for Salvitro. Guy was a saint. Put the cans out every time he cut the grass. God bless those gardeners. Those are the real ones. Hold on to them. From suburban New Jersey, we jump a few bridges and tunnels to Brooklyn, New York. But the exterior frame shows West 10th, and the storefront we see says Village Paper. Hmm. Feels kind of West Village, near those chess tables in Washington Square Park. God, I miss those. Nevertheless, we're in a bar. The proprietor, bartender, is enjoying his morning reading the New York Post. Barry Zito is on the back page, and the article ostensibly recounts the Oakland A's beating the Yankees and Zito outdueling Rocket Roger Clemens. This threw me a little, though, for a couple of reasons. We're in March. There's no baseball in March. And Zito and Clemens only dueled in the playoffs back in 2000. Zito did outduel Clemens there, but the Yankees won the series 3-2 and went on to a three-peat that year. Anyways, Zito caught my eye and had me doing calculations in my head, and I don't even follow baseball that closely. So enough with the money ball over here. Actually, speaking of money ball, Lorraine walks in to collect. Sorry, we're not open. What, not open? A man in your position turn away fucking business now. Love the way she says that. She's clearly alluding that the guy's into her for a sum of money. A little David Scatino 2.0 happening over here? A Brooklyn bust out where Lorraine Caluso is starting pitcher? Dan, the bartender, only has some of the money, though. Let me ask you a question, Dan. Say I'm some big nigga standing here instead of a woman. You still gonna tell me you got most of it? He hops to and proceeds to get the rest. Kind of slimy that it was right under his nose all along, that he was so liquid to the extent that all he had to do was pop open a cash register. No bank withdrawal. No scrounging for loose change under cushions or mattresses. Production design note. I noticed one of the items on his counter was something called Flavacol. That got me curious. The fuck is Flavacol? I've never heard of it. Turns out it's the secret ingredient in popcorn butter. What the fuck's it doing in a Brooklyn bar? Now, as Dan pops open the cash register, the front door to the bar opens. One door opens, another closes, right? And Phil Leotardo walks in. Note, we still haven't been formally introduced. But what better way than the following scene, right? Coming in with a phone book that immediately reveals a look of horror on Lorraine's face. Phil's backup here are Joey Peeps and Billy Leotardo, Phil's younger brother. Lorraine's busted, we learn, for kicking up to Little Carmine instead of Johnny Sack. The flow of funds isn't moving the right way, Phil and Joey explain, although not quite in those words. Little Carmine, she pleads, was her father's friend, Daddy Shylock. There's an untapped universe. Relax. This'll muffle the shot. Adios, you fucking skank. She survived. Saved by the White Pages. Literally, her knight in white satin armor. Which got me wondering, what caliber gun was Phil's that it couldn't make it all the way through the White Pages? Got stuck in the R's. Certainly not the forty-five in Feach's glove box. But what is this, physics class now? Subtle sound note. You can hear what appears to be liquid, almost like a sound of something spilling, or more likely, somebody peeing themselves. In this case, Lorraine. Though we never see it, just putting it out there would be a great directorial touch. 
Cut to Melvoin's conference room, aka safe place to have a sit-down where multiple families are involved. I'm finally reading Selwyn Rabb's Five Families. He's going to be a guest on the podcast soon. And one of the great things about it so far are the descriptions of the ways and means meetings of this nature would take place. Losing tails, using decoys, and on and on. These guys, if nothing else, were crafty. Like Kobe in the paint. Or James Harden around the three-point line. And Melvoin's in no rush. He's got his own times crossword. He's good. Again with the crossword. Nothing's coincidental. Tony's about to be crossed up by Junior. Angelo, Carmine's consigliere, is in the meeting, says he's been eating like a pharaoh, which made me wonder, how did pharaohs eat? Are there data points on that? Turns out there are. I know you want to say, Vic, you didn't actually look into this, but this shit is like shooting free throws, guys. I did. Here's what pharaohs ate. Buffaloes, sheeps, goats, tilapia fish, ducks, geese, honey, onions... A lot of onions, big pomegranates, and dates. And all this got washed down with beer. Then, Angelo and Junior boast their cable TV subscriptions. These two guys have cable? What's your fucking excuse, the writers ask, perhaps. Angelo breaks into a story about rekindling his relationship with his grandson. But Tony chops that tree down faster than Rocky training in Russia in four. Well, anyway... And we all are. Angelo's chief business today is rectifying the Johnny Sack Little Carmine spat. Angelo explains things could get ugly. There's a lot of potential for bloodshed. Then Jason Evanino tries to get a word in edgewise. But Lorraine delivers by far her best line and one of the best exchanges in screen history. They almost killed us. Jason, men are talking here. Angelo asks Tony what he thinks and Junior drops the infamous varsity athlete line. What's interesting here, though, stylistically, is that we're noticing Junior slowly beginning to lose it. Forgetfulness. Random knee-jerk commentary. But note the frame of him next to Tony at this table. Tony is in focus, whereas Junior is blurred. Even when Junior is talking, he's blurred. The focus is always on Tony. And this camera choice is all the more interesting here because we're witnessing something take hold over Junior's mind. And the blur puts emphasis on the imminent irrelevance he's headed toward. Okay, Tony has a solution. Namely, he proffers the notion of a power-sharing situation. A triumvir thing, like Caesar. Now, I'm not going to get into the deep histories of triumvirates throughout the world, but I kind of am. Definitionally, a triumvirate is a political model where three powerful people rule together. Troika is another word for the same thing. Importantly, however, trifecta is not, as these arrangements rarely end up well. Basketball is a perfect model for this. What big three has endured an era together? None. A couple of victories, sure, but never a legacy for the ages. So, Who was in Caesar's triumvirate? Well, Caesar, of course. Then there was Marcus Crassus, a really rich guy, and Pompey the Great, a legendary general. This was the first triumvirate. There was a second, comprised of Caesar Augustus, Mark Antony, and Marcus Lepidus. There were other triumvirate scenarios in other parts of the world as well. In honor of Janus' incarnation of Parvati, 
The Hindu gods Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva were a triumvirate as well. Hindus call this triumvirate Trimurti. Triumvirates historically have been formed to overcome a larger, more powerful foe. But once the antagonistic force has been stopped, the remaining three power centers end up fighting for supremacy. In fact, that was the story for most of them. Surprising, then, that Tony wouldn't see this as a mere band-aid, a time-biting tactic to avoid bloodshed, maybe, but something that inevitably brewed into something more nefarious and costly to him down the line. Cut to more malaprops. Only this time it's with Pauly. Writers that get called in off the bench have too much fun. Shoot their shots, if you will. Michael Calio drained all of his on this one. There he is. Salvatore, my Dali. <laughs> A quick Salvador Dali detour. Because did you really think I could pass up the chance? Dali was a Spanish painter, which is a nice tie-in with Julius Caesar from moments ago, who governed over what is now modern-day Spain during his rise to power. Some of Dali's notable works have Soprano's undertones and subtext. 1931's The Persistence of Memory, for example, which is currently at MoMA in New York City. Then there's 1944's Dream Caused by the Flight of a Bee, which is currently at a museum in Madrid, and which is said to be heavily influenced by Freud's contributions to dream science. And finally, 1954's Crucifixion, which, not surprisingly, is Dali's interpretation of Christ's crucifixion. And this one gets my juices flowing up a notch or two, because it is credited with applying Caravagesque lighting to elevate and distance Christ from the other objects in the image. It's cinematic. This painting is currently in New York City, too, at the Met. Okay, before this art history thing gets out of control, I move to the south of France, chop my ear off. Let's get back to the matter at hand. Pauly consoles Sal Vitro. Sal wants to go to the cops, but Pauly reminds him he's got friends. No need for cops and robbers. Paulie says he'll get Sal his stops back in exchange for a couple percentage points of his lawn business. The extortion is almost too facile for old school guys like Polly. Once you've been cornered like that, you almost have no choice. And Sal Vitro's face says it all. And his response isn't the first response on the tip of his tongue, but it sure is the only response he's going to say. Thanks, Polly. Polly rewards his new business partner with two rounds of drinks. Two percent, two drinks. Arm's length transaction, even though one arm was bum. Polly scoots onto the next hustle. From a guy drinking a stiff drink, we cut to a guy who is a stiff drink. Feech. And this beautiful shot of him sitting at his desk behind a La Mana bakery sign. Sign reads, our bread is La Mana from Heaven. A nod to Mana from Heaven, of course. The food showered down by God during the Israelite exodus. Polly comes to see him to reason with him about the Salvitro situation. It's worth mentioning that the neighborhood in question here, the turf, if you will, is Franklin Parkway. It'll be interesting to see if that comes up again in the movie later this year. So, Polly asks Feech to lay off Sal as a favor. And Feech's face receives the words lay off like an amoeba 
absorbing another cellular body, eating through its membrane, slowly and patiently. Feech proceeds to light a match under Polly's ass by saying a salon entrepreneur in the area asked Feech to take his action on the Knicks. Surely betting on them to lose, I might add, even back then. Oh! Now, Feech nicely sets up his posturing on Salvitro. He said no to a customer of Polly's. He's playing by the rules, right? That Lucky Luciano codified a few generations back. The gardener, however, Feech expresses, doesn't make the cut, doesn't rise to the level because he's not a pre-existing customer. And then this. Oh, what do you know about who belongs to what? You've been away 20 fucking years. Which entitles me to earn. Which entitles you to shit. In my book, you get points for staying out of the can. Good thing for me, then, that your book don't mean no gods to me. What's yours is yours, Paulie. But what ain't is anybody else's. Now do yourself a fucking favor and get the fuck out of my store. One of the all-time... One for the Ages, Encounters, rivals anything you'll ever see in any Western. These fucking guys. Two cowboy hats away from a Western. From that pressure cooker, the fact that Feech is sitting in front of a coal fire oven is a nice touch, we get a moment of levity. Tony, Janice, and AJ driving to Sunday dinner. Bobby, we learn, has been taking the kids to mass. He's become religious. Wonder if he took them to the city to take in that dolly painting at the Met. The timing of this religious revival coinciding with building a homestead with Janice is too perfect. Next, Janice pretends to be shocked that Bobby came to talk to Tony about his career, but she couldn't fucking sell it. Janice explains how burdened she is by all that she has to do now that Carmela is out of the mix. And Tony shuts that down by saying she and Barb are splitting the work. And she's doing it by driving all the way down from Brewster. There's Tony always putting Janice in her place. Right there, though, this is pregame shoot-around. He's getting his shots up for the fourth quarter. Close game situation, still to come. They pull up at Vesuvio, and Tony eyes Charmaine, who pays no attention to him. He's amused, it's great. Charmaine is a window to his youth, to what once was, to what might have been, to easier times when he didn't have to worry about being number one. And though these moments are fleeting, they're great little character nuances that endear us to him more and more, over and over. Curiously, they're there to pick up a to-go order. Sunday dinner was outsourced to Vesuvio. Carmela is missed more than ever. Her absence from this episode is never more apparent than right here. Funny how Janice was even complaining about that picking up the food. She's got such an agenda to get to some mythological place at lightning speed that she trips up all over herself every step of the way. Given her flirtation with Eastern sensibilities, it's especially ironic that she's unable to live in the moment, even for something as routine as picking up takeout. That exists so she didn't have to do any of the actual cooking in the first place. So, Artie's in the back re-sautéing mushrooms, and Tony comes in to see him. He wants to make up. And Artie, we learn, has been sleeping at a Motel 6. His aunt's house, where he was staying, the place I wondered about last season, wasn't an option anymore. That place, if you'll recall, 
looked like shit and was in dire need of an interior decorator. In any case, Artie chose moving out over a heart attack. I couldn't help myself. Tony offers Artie his mom's pad, where he happens to be crashing. Artie, we're like brothers. How long are we going to hold a grudge? Artie's got so much leverage with this guy, he doesn't realize it. He agrees, and all is good in the world. But as T walks away, his brain starts cranking. The hustle is live. The hustle is real. Artie's leverage has evaporated. Now listen, uh, I gotta talk to you about your linens, you know, the napkins and tablecloths, all that shit. I got something going. I think I can save you like 70%. Tony's eyes get dark and menacing. From soft and warm and apologetic, they change to something sinister and dangerous. It's haunting, but beautiful too. Artie turns around and looks up. There's recognition. His brain is cranking too. Even with the most benign of aid, an indebtedness is accrued. And as the Cornelius brothers and their sister Rose tell us, it's too late to turn back now. Artie's telling us with his eyes that Tony just saw 14 steps ahead. All the permutations at like internet fucking speed. Cut to Junior's house for Sunday dinner. Bob Vila's on the tube. A lot of home improvement stuff on the TV. Must have been a slow news day or sports day or whatever the fuck. Bob Vila. Guy slings his own line of power tools now. Been in the home improvement game longer than Home Depot. On the TV we hear there's been a lot of progress to the facade. In some instances, all the paint is off. How loaded is that? The camera's on Tony. Are we talking about him? Remember those cobwebs? Or what about Junior and his eroding mind, maybe? Speaking of Junior, he's hungry. We're going to eat today or what? At the table, Bobby makes small talk with AJ. Mentions a school, Del Barton. Lost to them twice. Which made me wonder, are they a good program in real life? Yes and no. Del Barton's a private Catholic all-boys college prep school in Morristown, New Jersey, about 45 minutes west of Newark. It's not exactly a football powerhouse, but their history has been dotted with state championships throughout the years. And while it's never exported any major NFL talent, Game of Thrones star Peter Dinklage attended the school. All right, but winter already came to Potabing. Let's forge ahead, dire wolves in tow. How's that for a football team name? The Perth Amboy? Direwolves. Okay, seriously, stop. The football talk sets up Junior to rip Tony's athletic prospects. Tony shows some restraint for the sake of the dinner table and explains that he lettered in football. But Junior undoes that by saying he never played in college. In fairness to Tony, varsity is one thing. College is something else, right? Love the parenting overdrive moment. Tony is sure to vocalize that he took an academic leave. Really read, dropped out. But that's his narrative when AJ's at the table. Small hands, that was your problem. <laughs> oh, yeah, Daddy always said that. Tony changes the way some of us change or revert when we're in the presence of people who call us out on our own past shit. So Barb and her fam finally arrive and she explains why they were late. 
the Tappan Zee was checking trucks again. That's the bridge that spans the Hudson River and links New York and New Jersey. It's since been renamed to the Governor Mario M. Cuomo Bridge. That happened a few years ago when the cantilevered original bridge was replaced with a modern cable-stayed structure. Barb's husband? Poor guy had no clue. But also didn't really care so much. More food for him. Starts talking about football. And Junior brings up Tony again. Only this time. Son of a bitch! What? Did I just tell you not to say that again? Say what? You don't like the way I talk? Get out of my house. Here we go, Tony. No, Tony, shit. Get your coat. We're leaving. Uh, I don't have a coat. Well, then get moving, goddammit. Well, someone please tell me what's going on. It's my last Sunday dinner here. That's what's going on. Junior calls him a goddamn hothouse flower which is richly defined as a person who is very fragile and vulnerable as a result of having been sheltered. For all the parents out there, the New York Times wrote a piece about how to tell whether or not your kid is a hothouse flower back in 2009. I think I'm in the clear. Let me know how you guys are faring. Incidentally, it's also the name of an Irish rock band. They're still active. One of their most listened to songs on Spotify is their cover of Johnny Nash's I can see clearly now. Before we leave this scene, I gotta love how everybody shrugs it off and carves into the food choices provided by Vesuvio. Back over to Polly and his aunt. They watch Salvitro from a window, kind of like we watch The Sopranos, eyes smashed against the windows to their lives. Poor guy's arm is propped up with a PVC pipe attached to his hip. Kind of reminds me of when Kobe would pull a finger, dislocate this or snag that. He'd get a quick band-aid on the bench and then get right back up and mow that lawn, paint that house, get that W. Okay, next we've got Tony and Johnny Sack meeting secretly in the dark. Cue Pink Floyd. In what appears to be Shea Stadium or Shea Stadium adjacent, the old Shea Stadium. Note how T looks around, surveys the field before exiting the car. Always looking until he's not. This made me wonder how he's so sure his own car isn't bugged. I don't know why, but for some reason this thought occurred to me just now for the first time. To this point, we've never seen him sweep his car for a listening or tracking device. Not his old car, not his new one. Just putting that out there. Tony's there to do Lorraine's bidding. Fucking twat. Didn't you fuck her once? Johnny Sack reveals that she and Tony once had a thing. Tony's biased is the point. Johnny Sack's whole thing is, if nobody's sure who to pay, nobody gets paid. This scene is reminiscent of a past one where Tony is talking to Richie. In that frame, a bouquade lit-up carousel is behind them. In this frame, a lit-up bouquade Ferris wheel is behind them. No one likes that cunt anyway. The problem is she's whacked this one, whacked that one. Never enough body count for Lorraine. Fuck her, let her taste her own medicine. Then Johnny Sack blames T for little karma. He legitimized it. Man of your statue goes to Florida to see that schmuck. All right, come on. Great line. Then Tony tells Johnny Sack about the triumvirate. Says it's Angelo's idea. Fucking Tony. Tony tries to warm blanket it by saying, this way Johnny Sack won't be such a target for the feds. But Johnny Sack's pot just boiled over. Tony further explains that three of the other families have this kind of arrangement. What's this, the fucking UN now? Cut to serious by Alan Parsons' project, playing over a Tony Robbins infomercial. I always thought that was the beginning of Van Halen's Right Now. It's time you start living the life 
you've imagined blazes across the screen. A quote from Henry James immediately conjures up Notting Hill. Julia Roberts playing a part in a Henry James movie, I believe. See, I watch other things on HBO too. Junior's Mop Man is watching. Nice reveal. For a second, you feel like that would be something T would be watching while reflecting on his encounter with Johnny Sack. This motherfucker was so enamored with Tony Robbins' message, I mean, who isn't, right? That he missed Junior sneaking out with his car. Bobby had to ask. Note the time on the Rolex timepiece. A few minutes after three. Mop guy says... You don't think somebody put the snatch on him, do you? When did you see him last? We cut to Junior outside his car, in a robe, strolling down some kind of memory lane. The makings of an Edward Hopper painting over here. The old neighborhood. I wondered, what is it about dementia and memory lane? He's outside a building with the number 468 on the door. That's a number that suggests, among other things, the time for reaching your destination is nearing. It's a faith center, established in 1987, which is interesting because that's the same year the bosses of the five families were sentenced in the infamous commission case, which could suggest that a lot of once-mob-controlled spots changed hands, this place being one of them. Inside, a coach or teacher or mentor, whatever the fuck, is instructing kids on how to sell candy door-to-door, using the line, you're not interested in keeping kids off drugs as a closing tactic. Grant Cardone over here. Guy could sell ice to Eskimos. Shabazz, future captain of industry, craps on the product. But always be closing Alec Baldwin over here, says, push harder. The whole sequence is a wonderful palate cleanse, the filling in between two junior frames. Junior comes in looking for Johnny Soprano and some guy called Damiano. Incidentally, there's a Bonanno family captain with the same name. We learned that the Italians used to run vending machines through the building, but no more. Got me curious about vending machine economics. Let's go. As of 2018, vending is a $23 billion annual business. Interestingly, over half now accept credit cards, something I imagine the Soprano family would frown upon. So, Junior gets thrown out, and outside he stares at his keys and has some kind of realization. Epiphany or something. He walks out of the frame away from his car. And we cut to Bobby, who's soaking wet from sweat on the phone. He's on the phone with Bobby Sanfilippo. Bobby and Bobby. Nice blast from the past. He's turning over every stone, but Mop Guy tells him that Junior's been acting weird. Out of it. And then something clicks. Bobby's envisioning how big a mess he's going to have to clean up. Which is appropriate because the next cut is over to another TV infomercial. This time it's Joy Mangiano's Miracle Clean. Her story, of course, was told through cinema in 2015's Joy, starring Jennifer Lawrence. This time it's Janice who's watching. All these little sneak attacks. We think it's Tony. Usually is. But in this episode, there are decoys. The writers are running trick plays over here. The 49ers could have used a couple few extra of those in the Super Bowl. Jan is reading Bedwetting, Cause and Correction. Gotta respect the blunt force trauma of that title. I mean, if you're looking for a book about bedwetting, they aren't sugarcoating shit with that one. Bobby calls. He's desperate for help. Calling Jan is a case in point. She sees Bobby Jr. making himself some chocolate milk. 
and she swoops in and takes it away. Can pretty much guarantee you that was not in the book. Bobby implores her to come to Junior's so he can go out and look for him. She's cudgeled into it, but gives us a look that Jan brain of hers is cranking 100 miles an hour. What's she up to? What's her play? From Janice's Art of War, we're in the car with Polly, listening to the Art of War. I love this. If Polly was around today, he'd be listening to podcasts. Imagine that. Imagine him doing a podcast and then saying, like Kevin Durant, I did your fucking podcast, finger pointing in maximum proximity to your eye, no doubt. The narrator reads, he will win who knows when and when not to fight. Our classroom lesson is interrupted when Polly sees Lamana's truck. Actually, fuck it. We haven't done it yet, and it's as good a time as any. Let's get into the five ways to win that Polly was listening to. Sun Tzu suggests five essentials for victory. The first one we got, he will win who knows when to fight and when not to fight. The second, he will win who knows how to handle both superior and inferior forces. The third, he will win whose army is animated by the same spirit throughout its ranks. Fourth, he will win who prepared for himself waits to take the enemy unprepared. Finally, five, he will win who has military capacity and is not interfered with by the sovereign. Okay, enough with the Cobra Kai dojo over here. Back to Gary Lamana. Guy's working up in a tree. The camera framing and angle on Polly is a thing of beauty. Wide and tight, enveloping. Gary tells him to eat shit, take a walk. And Polly responds by doing Polly better than Polly. I mean, it's almost like he is this guy, the character and actor, one and the same. See what I did there? Upon laying both guys out flat, he cleans out Gary's wallet, plus claims ownership of Gary's lawnmower. Talk about adverse possession. Says he owes 1200 more for Salvitro's medical bill. Tops it off with a 10% cut of whatever Gary takes in from this neighborhood. Gary calls him a motherfucker, which is crazy. How many of us could talk after a fall like that? Guy's got a rib cage like Rocky over here. Wonderful comic moment. Polly pushing a lawnmower across the street, chirping his car alarm to pop the trunk, and trying to fit the thing in his trunk. Nice touch of regularness of life, right after watching a guy fall out of a tree. The elder woman bystander is the cherry on top. The humor percolating in every corner, bubbling up every which way, no matter how bleak the message. Now we're at Livia's house. Christopher's inside waiting for Tony. Great shot of him. Gets the Caravaggio treatment. They're late for something, it appears. But Christopher says they'll take the tunnel. Sounds like a meeting in the city. They need a new contractor, we learn, now that Mazarone's gone. T warns Chris to shut up if anything about Johnny Sack or Lorraine comes up. Nice writerly setup for the exact fucking opposite thing to happen. Fucking subordinates, right? Then, Bobby calls in a panic. Echoes of Pine Barrens. Makes Tony think Junior's dead. Either way, he's dead to Tony. How many times are we going to hear that? Direction note. Bobby sits in a chair and reflects. Then we get a rare time-lapse cut to show him sitting on the couch. One of the few instances where we remember we're watching TV. 
the camera technique to convey the passage of time. Cut to the Johnny Sack meeting at his social club. Johnny's in the middle of explaining how close he once was with little Carmine. He was in his wedding party. He arranged his bachelor party, for Christ's sakes. Safe to say it didn't involve a wet t-shirt contest, though, given Johnny Sack's detestation of them from an earlier episode. Then he mentions that one of Carmine's kids had a lung problem. Johnny Sack was the guy that fixed him up with a doctor on Park Avenue. Turns out the best lung doctors are still on Park Avenue. Upper 70s, to be precise. Tony says, water over the dam, huh? Which is interchangeable with water under the bridge, so not quite a malaprop. Chris is taken aback. Didn't know that they were so close. Tony senses a foot-in-the-mouth moment, asks for bread. Then Chris powers through and offers a solution. You know, it wasn't long ago I remember you used to wait in the car. And as far as I'm concerned, you should still be there. Love how Johnny Sack's pinky ring glistens just a little bit extra to drive the emphasis home, almost as if he had had a visit from Mr. Clean himself. Fuck, it was just. Everybody's got a goddamn opinion. Cut to Phil Leotardo looking over his shoulder in the distance. The ominousness of that movement is just perfection. The economy of motion in that character is signature to his menace. And the little detail of the bartender polishing glasses just behind him, could it get any more nostalgic? Two bartenders this episode, by the way. Another bit of symmetry. So Johnny Sack ups and leaves, and Vito immediately washes his hands clean. I didn't say nothing, Tom. Cut to the car. Tony's driving Chris. Usually it's the other way around. What the fuck did I say? I'm sorry, T. I just thought I'm I... I'm gonna unfuck what you just fucked up. Then Tony takes Chris to school. Starts verbalizing those permutations already talks about episodes ago. They stand to gain. Fallout. From one car to another... Aids dishing scoops to Robin San Severino. Love the camera choice to approach on the car, almost as if the secret's out, assuming we're operating under the pretense that we're seeing the show through Tony's eyes sometimes. Robin asks the question audiences have been asking since time immemorial. Is Chris Tony's nephew or cousin? Ancestry.com over here. Aid explains. Chrissy's not Tony's nephew. He's Carmela's cousin. So any relationship Tony has to Chris is by marriage. Carm was Dickie Moltisanti's first cousin. Dickie was Christopher's dad. And Dickie was like a big brother to Tony. So Tony calls Chris his nephew. That's where that comes from. Then he throws a wrench in the whole thing. She explains, technically, Tony and Chrissy are cousins. Chrissy's mom is Tony's cousin on his mother's side. But Aide says it like she's confused, like she isn't sure. She qualifies it with a mention of the old country. Append old country onto it and anything goes, right? And as she's describing this, Robin writes furiously. Not unlike the way I write notes for the pod when I'm thinking about things to say about a scene I've watched 19 times. Aide wonders how much longer she's going to have to do this. Robin explains that major Ricos take years to build. She mentions Joe Messino in New York took seven years before indictments were handed down. Joe Messino, of course, is a former boss of the Bonanno crime family. He is the first boss of the five families to flip. Like Christopher, he started as a truck hijacker. 46 Longs were his stock and trade, too, for a while. The Rico case against him cemented his fate, 
largely because his own underboss, a guy named Salvatore Vital, was a turncoat. All told, he faced 11 RICO counts across seven murders, not to mention a full roster of nonviolent crimes. He was convicted on all counts and faced the death penalty. To that, he flipped almost instantly and currently lives freely under full surveillance. And with all that, a thoughtful cut to Junior. By virtue of patience on a monument, he certainly knows a thing or two about what waiting seven years feels like, with him trying to be boss of the family and all that. And the frame of him sitting on a tattered bench beautifully conveys that. He's sitting across from what looks like an old coke plant. An elder black woman comes in and sits down next to him. Doesn't waste any time laying out the rules of engagement. She acts as if they know each other. Junior recollects a place called the Jupiter Club on 6th Street. She says it caught fire. What did this woman represent, I wondered? A survivor from the 1967 riots, maybe? She goes on to explain that a taxi cab just ran over her foot, which is funny because we know how Junior feels about feet. Remember the dreadnought? Those bunions? She asks for a ride, offers him a half and half in the back seat, which makes him freak out and flee. He gets his senses back for a moment, it seems. Then we dissolve to him wandering at night on a bridge, Clay Street Bridge in Newark, on the Passaic River, to be exact. First thought, is he going to jump? He sees cops, hides behind a dumpster, tells them who he is, but they don't believe him. Eventually, he acquiesces to get in the car with them, and they bring him home, where Janice is waiting. Jan asks where his car is. He says they stole it. She says who, and he snaps at her and says, you know who. The eye contact is impactful. Is this dementia or something else? You go out for some exercise, people give you the goddamn third degree. Over to Tony at his mother's house. Beers everywhere. Low and brows. Fried shrimp. Tony's wearing a scowl. There's a knock on the door. Already the makings of something bad. It's Jan and Bobby. Junior may have Alzheimer's, but Tony could care less. Artie walks in through the back with a tray of mozzarella and carosa, fancy for fried mozzarella sandwiches. Janice shunts him. You're the only one he relates to, Tony. We won't even be able to get him in the car. Fuck him. You put yourself. You sure did. Just kind of deep. Is she referring to the fact that they're both on some kind of boss wavelength? Jan has the nerve to criticize his life, his marriage. It gets physical and nasty and real. Like so many bystanders in this thing of theirs, Artie ends up getting the brunt of it. She storms out, and there's a great soundbite. You want more responsibility? Stop with controlling your wife. For a second there, Bobby looked like he was about to jump Tony. A powerful message is conveyed. Now, two seasons and change removed from the stranglehold of Livia Soprano, her power, her presence, in her own house, no less, is manifest and ripe and overpowering. Tony and Artie look at each other, perhaps tacitly acknowledging the wind of Livia's ghost that just blew through the house. Cut to Feech in the middle of a story. We start on the line and then from nowhere which is a nice touch given what just happened to Artie. Feech and Polly are having a sit-down with T. Polly says Gary Lamana jumped out of the tree and came after him with a chainsaw. The level of bullshit is unprecedented, even for Polly. I got a right to defend myself, Tom. Uh, take it easy. Relax. 
Polly mentions a place called Kresge's. His ma used to work there. Defunct since 1964, it was a department store in Newark. True fucking story. The Kresge heirs had no desire to continue business operations when their patriarch passed. So they sold the business to, get this, a man called David Chase, who rebranded the store Chase Newark. That incarnation lasted until 1967. That year just keeps popping up. T lets them know that he wants his taste, retroactive, naturally, since it's the first he's heard about it. Note that Tony's doing a lot of shared power stuff in this episode and making sure to stake his claims along the way. So next, we've got Polly breaking the news to poor Sal. Boy, did he get screwed. Less than half for his arm, only half the street, plus he's got to mow a few lawns for free. The worst part, he doesn't have a say in the matter. Pauly, meanwhile, gets the double dip on both ends. From mowing lawns in the suburbs to a place where Sal would make a killing mowing lawns, a golf course. Tony and Pontecorvo just wrap their tea time, and a doctor notices him, Harry Weiner, Livia's neurologist. He's also treating Junior now, we learn. And he tells Tony that Junior's having mini-strokes, calls them infarcts, which is a fancy word for obstructions to the blood supply of an organ. Untreated, they can effectively cause parts of your body to die. Scary shit. Cut to the little mini-movie of Johnny Sack pulling up, Salvitro's mowing his lawn, love the camera pullback, fucking just another day in suburban Americana over here. And finally, Junior's place. And this beautiful moment between Junior and Tony and a freezer seal. Tony wants to check in after talking to the doctor. Junior's short and defensive. Prairie dogs are on the TV. Also short and defensive. Believe me, there's plenty I like to forget. Yeah, you and me both. That's powerful moment number one. Tony sees the Lamana bakery bag. Tony takes that as Feech came to bitch about him. And Junior gives us powerful moment number two. I'm still the boss of this family, despite any arrangements. The beats. Tony brings up the varsity shit, says he acknowledges that Junior may not have known what he was saying. Pokes and prods more about Feech. But then comes right back to it. And that brings us to powerful moment number three. Right, let's assume that you didn't know what you were saying, that, that you forget what you say shit over and over. Yeah. Why's it got to be something mean? Why can't you repeat something good? There's the coyote. I mean, don't you love me? That don't you love me was at once intended for multiple people. Sure, he was asking Uncle Junior, but Junior felt like a conduit to his subconscious there. Through him, he was also asking his mom and dad and Carm, Meadow and AJ. Guy's just a sad clown trying to put one foot in front of the other. The shudder on Junior's face makes the screen crack. The music, Earth, Wind, Water, 
completes our full hollowing out. And Junior, the way he looks away, that was his freezer seal. Junior never had the makings of a varsity uncle or father. And maybe his search for Johnny this episode came from a place of guilt, like Tony's toward Tony B. Guilt that maybe he wasn't a varsity brother either. That's all I got. Thank you, listeners. See you next time. 